tonight we're starting a new series in the book of Second Peter, and uh, I'm really excited to be digging into this book together. I think it's going to be really good for us as a church. And my job uh, for us tonight is to, through studying the first two verses, give us the kind of right spectacles to wear as we carry on through this series, to give us the kind of right lens and mindset through which to read and to study and understand the rest of the book. It's really important as we come to something that is a letter that we understand some things about it, right? We understand who it's from, who it's to, very importantly, what it's for. What is the point of this letter? What's its aim? And if we start to understand tonight the intention of this book, and I believe we can understand the intention of the book, then this is what's going to happen. If we get two Peters about this, two Peter wants me to get this, then each week as we come along to the first of you, sit and read it and read it and read it. And it so it's just, there's something wonderful about that. So I think this is a book that we can really get our heads into. And so that's what we're going to try to do tonight as we look at these first two verses and think about who wrote this letter, who it was written to, and for what reason. Cornerly, I've called that penned, posted, and purposed, but that's not great, so you don't need to remember that. But that's what we're going to study, and you'll see that even in the three lines that are in those first two verses. So let me read it again to us, and then we'll get into it. 2 Peter 1, verse 1. Simon Peter, a servant and apostle of Jesus Christ, to those who through the righteousness of God and of our God and Savior, Jesus Christ, have received a faith as precious as ours. Grace and peace be yours in abundance through the knowledge of God and of Jesus our Lord. Amen. This is God's word to us. So easy, penned. Who wrote this letter? It's a giveaway in the title, Simon Peter. See that in verse 1? This is a letter written by Simon Peter, the man who we can come to get to know in the Gospels and in the book of Acts. We met him this morning. He's kind of like the Glaswegian disciple. He's always cutting people's ears off and he's kind of pretty proactive and a bit more chatty. He wouldn't fit in well in Edinburgh, but that's who he is. But his name even tells us a little bit about him. This is Simon Peter. So we meet him at the start of the book and he's Simon, this fisherman. He's kind of rough around the edges and he's always putting his foot in it. But even that name tells us something of his story. Because he came to be Simon Peter. Jesus said, you are Peter. On this rock I will build my church. So this is a guy who in his life story met the Lord Jesus Christ, walked with him for three years and was radically changed as a person. We could do a whole sermon just called Simon Peter and just look at his life. And you could really do that uh, this week as you read through John, as Liam encouraged us to do this morning. You'll see lots of Peter through the book of John. And it'd be good for us to understand where this guy's coming from. But Simon Peter says to us at the start of this letter, I'm writing to you with two mindsets. I'm going to give myself two designations. This is how you to understand me as I write to you. See those in verse 1? First one, a servant of Jesus. Second one, an apostle of Jesus. As I write to you, this is my mindset. I'm writing as a servant and as an apostle. First one, then servant. The word there is actually slave. So Simon says, I'm writing to you in service of Jesus, as someone who is a slave to Christ. I'm doing this under a commissioning. I write as a servant. As this guy, Peter, the fisher, the fisherman, what was he called to do as a servant? If we look at his life, we'll see that, right? Jesus asked him to serve him by being a few things. He said, Simon, you're going to be a fisher of men. That's how you're going to serve me. He said, Simon, on you, on the bedrock of your confession of me as Christ, you're going to be the foundation of the church. Uh, With the other disciples, Simon Peter is told, 
you should make disciples of all nations, baptizing them in the name of the Father, the Son, and the Holy Spirit, and teaching them to obey. This is the service Jesus asks of Peter. So when he says, I'm a servant, this is the serving he's doing. He's teaching us to obey. But amazingly, with Simon Peter, you remember at the end of John's Gospel, Peter has denied Jesus three times. And then Jesus meets with Peter after he's been raised, and he reinstates him three times to this service. This is his commissioning. And what does he tell him to do? He says, feed my sheep, feed my lambs, take care of the flock. So when Simon Peter says to us, I'm writing as a servant, this is his service. This is our feeding, this is our caring. That's his mindset as he writes. But he says something else, doesn't he? Number one, we're servant. Number two, he's an apostle. Now that does tell us a little bit about his job. Apostle means sent one. But it's way more significant than that. When he says, I'm writing as an apostle, He's saying, I'm writing as someone who has been an eyewitness to the glory of Jesus. I've met Jesus in his resurrection. And Jesus has given me, along with 11 other guys, special authority to establish Jesus' truth, to teach the message of Jesus, to record the message of Jesus. He's been given special endowment by the Holy Spirit to do this. He writes as an apostle. And if we had time, we'd look through verses 16 to 21. Do you remember as we read them? about Talking about the prophets who wrote as they were carried along. And the apostles too, writing with such authority. You can even see that in the end of chapter 3. That he says that Paul's writings are like scripture. They're written in the same way. And that's what he's saying. As an apostle, I write authoritative truth. What I write to you, because I'm an apostle is not just my word, but as an apostle of the Lord Jesus, it's Jesus' word. So how are we going to read Second Peter? Yes, we read it as a letter of a servant written for our good to feed us. But we should read every word that follows this as the authoritative word of God for our feeding and for our good. This is the word of God. That's who wrote this letter, Simon Peter, a servant and apostle. But who do you write it to? Read with me again in verse 1. To those who through the righteousness of our God and Saviour, Jesus Christ, have received a faith as precious as ours. It's written to people, to those who, and then you come to the end of it, have received the Christian faith. A faith as precious as ours. This is written to believers, right? Do you see how broad that those is? It's not those in a certain location or those in a certain time. To those who have received the faith. If you're a Christian, you've got mail. Which is a great film. You've got mail tonight. This is written to you. You are somebody who has received the Christian faith. That's what it means by faith there. It doesn't mean personal belief or trust. This is the Christian faith. Think kind of Jude 3. The faith once for all entrusted to the faith. This is the body of Christian truth that we've been given. To people who've received that, this letter is written. And he wants to remind them, he wants to remind us how we came by this precious faith and just how precious it is. Do you see how he writes how he came by it? How did people like us come to be people who possessed this precious faith? How did the faith even come to be? Look again with me in verse 1. To those who, through the righteousness of our God and Savior Jesus Christ, have received a faith as precious as ours. You've received the faith through the righteousness of our God and Savior Jesus Christ, through his righteousness. It is according to God's righteousness, his perfection in his person and in his purposes, in his own holy character, that the Christian faith exists. 
It is because God is who he is and does what he does that there is a Christian faith and that it gets given to people like me and you according to his faithfulness, his graciousness. It's amazing, isn't it? The gospel comes to us because of his own grace and glory and goodness. He brings it about just as he had promised. It has come to pass. Why has the gospel come to pass? Because a gracious God promised it. How has it been accomplished? Because a gracious God is utterly faithful to his purposes. Through that kind of righteousness, through God's own righteousness, this faith has come to be. And if you think about it, it only makes sense, right? Only he could graciously give his son. Only he could graciously choose people like me and you. Do you see how it's nothing to do with us? He has given us, according to his faithfulness, his saving faithful character, this faith. And that word received, uh, there's lots of ways to receive something, isn't there? You can receive something that's owed to you. You can receive something that is rightfully yours. That's not this word. This word is a special word for received. And it only gets used when you've received something by the casting of lots or by the divine will. This is only something you get gifted. Not something you could ever earn. It has to be received. Not according to you. Not according to your righteousness. According to the divine will and the divine righteous will in this verse. That's how we've come to receive it. It's been given according to the righteousness of God. Verse 3 really helps us understand what this means, right? This whole, I know it's a kind of funny concept through the righteousness. So come with me to verse 3. Look again for the word when he's talking about God's righteousness. So in the middle of verse 3, through our knowledge of him, now what's he done? He who called us, according to what? By his own glory and goodness. That's the righteousness. He doesn't call us according to our righteousness. He calls us according to his glory and goodness. That's why we get called. That's why we get given this precious faith. And what a gift it is. Let's look at the preciousness of this faith. Do you see that? A faith as precious as ours. Think about who the ours is. That's Simon Peter. That's an apostle. An eyewitness of the glory of of Jesus, who saw the transfiguration of Jesus. He says, you have a faith. You, Christian, have a faith of equal standing, of equal preciousness with people who saw the glory of Jesus. Why is it equal? Why is there such level ground? Well, it's because it comes through equally remarkable grace and it has equally remarkable benefit. This is what makes it commonly precious, right? There is total equality amongst the Christian community. There isn't some people who earned it and some people who didn't earn it that well. It's totally equal. That means for all of us, it means that the apostles, the apostle Paul, the greats of the Christian faith, and us, people like me and you, have all come to this thing on totally equal ground. From Derek Prime to Primary Ones, right? We get this thing equally. And here's how it comes to us. It doesn't come to us because we're righteous. It comes to us according to his grace that we get this share in it. Again, I think verse four helps us understand what's precious about this faith. Okay, so it's precious because none of us deserved it and we've all been gifted it according to the glory of God. But it's precious because of its benefit. Come with me to verse four. You'll see the word precious again. Through these he has given us his very great and precious, that's the exact same word, promises, so that through them, here's the preciousness, you may participate in the divine nature and escape the corruption in the world caused by evil desires. Here is the preciousness of the Christian faith. We get to escape the corruption due to the world because of evil desires 
not only do we escape, but we get elevated to the divine nature. This is the goodness, the preciousness, the honor of the Christian faith, is that no matter who you are, no matter where you've come from, whether you're Paul or Martin, you get spared from the corruption that's due to this world because Jesus dies in your place. Jesus takes the destruction that was due to us. This evil that's in the world, it's ours. We're the reason corruption and destruction is coming to the world, but we get spared from it because of Jesus' death in our place, as we heard this morning. But not only are we spared, like I said, we're elevated to take part in the divine nature. Jesus makes us righteous with his perfect righteousness. He gives us his eternal life through his resurrection. And he gives us this amazing position, the position of sons in the presence of God. That's what it is to participate in the divine nature. We get to be his sons and be with him forever. This is a book full of the end of the world, right? It's full of the fact that Jesus is definitely returning. If Jesus' return isn't included, Peter would say that's not the gospel. The gospel includes Jesus returning, which is good news for those who have become partakers in this divine nature because it means certainly going to be with him. See that in in chapter 3, verse 13? You might need to flick over the page in your pew Bibles. This is the certainty. This is part of the preciousness. But in keeping with his promise, 3 verse 13, we are looking forward to a new heaven and a new earth, the home of righteousness. We will partake in the divine nature forever and ever and ever and ever in the place where God dwells. This is the preciousness of the Christian faith. And he highlights the preciousness and he highlights the return for a reason. These things are important, right? He wants us to cling to the precious faith to be fully aware of the glorious benefits of the Christian faith. Why? Because of his purpose in this letter. The audience matters, right? This is a group of people, Christians like us, who have received the precious faith. But where are they? What's going on? These are people that live in a world of danger. Do you see the hazard tape around chapters 2 and 3? That's like the most extreme language in the Bible. But the danger is real. There are people... They were in the first century and they are now who are going to pervert the Christian truth. Who are going to say Jesus isn't coming back. Who are going to say you don't need to live a godly life. Do you see that in, at the very start of chapter 2, chapter 2 verse 1? But there were also false prophets among the people just as there will be certainly false teachers among you. They will secretly introduce destructive heresies even denying the sovereign Lord who bought them bringing swift destruction on themselves. Peter says the faith is precious because there's a chance we might let go of the precious faith. That's what's going on here. He wants to remind them of the faith because there are those who chuck it in, who twist it and say we don't need to be godly or say Jesus isn't coming back. And two and three are pretty clear about their their fate, right? It's not good. It's not good. And so Peter writes as a servant wanting to feed sheep, wanting to teach disciples, wanting to care for the flock, and as an apostle, somebody who knows the truest of the true gospels, nothing false about Peter's gospel. He is not a distorter. He is an eyewitness to the glory of Jesus. He writes with those mindsets to these people in their real danger with a purpose. Come with me to verse 2. This is not just a little bit of a pithy greeting. This is a statement of intent for the book of 2 Peter and a prayer to God. 
chapter 1, verse 2. This is the purpose of this letter. Grace and peace be yours in abundance through the knowledge of God and of Jesus our Lord. Here's the point of this book, right? If the first two penned and posted meant nothing to you, come with me on this one. Purpose. This is the point of this book. In this book, Peter says, I don't want you to be anywhere near losing the faith. I don't want you to be anywhere near those people who have totally lost out on grace and peace forever, have faced judgment forever. I don't want you to be near them. I want you to follow their deceptions. I don't want you to forget how to live the Christian life and to recall the true preciousness of the gospel. He says quite the opposite. I want you to have more grace and more peace. I want them to be yours in abundance. That's not the case for these false teachers, but Peter is desperate that it would be the case for these people who've received the precious faith through the righteousness of Jesus. He says, grace and peace be yours in abundance. Literally in the original language, that says, be multiplied to you. Not just added on like, oh, now you've got a little top up and you're out of abundance. This is just ever multiplied. Grace and peace. Grace, the unmerited favor of God. Peace with God and with his people always just coming to you. Now and forever. That's what Peter wants for the audience. That's his purpose in this book, to constantly have the grace of the Lord Jesus Christ multiplied to Charlotte Chapel. That's Peter's point for us as we study it. That's us as preachers. That's our point and purpose as we preach this book to you, that grace and peace would abound, be multiplied. You want to be around as we study to you, Peter, right? Do you want grace? Do you want more grace? Do you want peace? More peace? Do you want that forever? Certainly. Stick around. Need more grace in your family life? Need more peace in your personal life? Do we need more grace and more peace as a church to to be together? Boy, oh boy, do we need grace and do we need peace. And Peter writes that we might have them, but how are we going to get them? If that's the goal of this letter, that we're going to get grace and peace multiplied to us, What's the means of this letter? How are we going to get them? We need them, right? We need them. I'm looking at you tonight. We need them. We need grace. We need peace. We need them to be multiplied to us. We want that for our lives, right? How's it going to come? Verse 2 again. Grace and peace be yours in abundance. Be multiplied to you. How? Through the knowledge of God and of Jesus our Lord. How do grace and peace from God become ours? It is as we know, and I mean really know, the Lord Jesus Christ and the Father. And when he says no, he doesn't just mean information, but that's included. He means proper relational knowledge. I want you to know God and Jesus Christ. And as you know him in that way, through that relational knowledge, grace and peace is just going to be multiplied to your life, and to your church, and to your family life. How are they going to come? It's through the knowledge. Now, don't get me wrong. I'm saying relational knowledge. This isn't fuzzy feeling time. Relational knowledge includes informational knowledge, right? It includes intellectual comprehension, right? I know some of my friends. Does that mean I don't know any facts about them? No, of course I do. That's part of how I know them. I wouldn't know them as people if I didn't know stuff about them, where they're from, what they like, what they want to do at the weekend, what's gone on with them in the past year. That's data. You can put that on a chart. 
But it's part of relational knowledge. And it's the exact same with God, isn't it? Think about it. How did we first get grace and peace? We came to know Jesus in our salvation. Did that include intellectual knowledge? Yeah. I came to realize that he was the sinless son of God who died for sinners. Did it include intellectual knowledge? Yeah, I know that on the third day he rose. That's facts. That's history book stuff, right? And that must be there if we're going to have the relational knowledge that says, but hang on, I know that out of his righteousness, he's given me righteousness. I know that he died for sinners, but I know that he died for me. That's relational knowledge built on a fact. I know that he rose to new life, so I will certainly be raised. That's information relationally applied. And that's the kind of knowledge that Peter says, hey, if you want grace and peace, get more of this knowledge. If you want to know what it is to have grace and peace multiplied to you, know God. That's what happens in our salvation, isn't it? Peter says, not just in your salvation. Yeah, this is how we got converted, right? We got grace and peace because we came to know Jesus for the first time. He says, you want more grace and peace? You want it to multiply, continually multiply, just keep going, keep going, keep going, exponential. You want that? Keep knowing him. You want to be spared from this danger? You've got to keep knowing him. That's what he's saying. This isn't just the start of Christian life. This is the whole of Christian life. Constantly grace and peace to the Christian as we continue to know and increasingly know with greater depth and greater breadth the knowledge of God. We've got to know him. Yeah, relationally, but certainly intellectually. There is an intellectual phobia in churches where it's like knowing God properly or really studying the Bible is like for pastors or for theologians. Nonsense! This is for us. Where in this verse does it say just for those who are over 75? It doesn't. Where's the 18 plus sticker? I don't see it. To every Christian who want grace and peace, come to know and know him better. Do you remember that in, the, in Dickens? Come in and know me better, man. That's the invitation. Come in and know me better. Go deeper with God. What have you learned about him recently? How do you know him better? What, what more do you know of the gospel? There's limitless to know. But do you know more? Yep, you've come to be a Christian. That's fantastic. You've received grace and peace. But are you going to endure as a Christian? Are you going to be fruitful in that knowledge? Is that knowledge going to keep you going to the last day? No, you need to know him more. You need to go deeper in what was already known. Come and see the piercing arrow of knowledge that just runs through this book. This is a book all about knowing. Knowledge is massive. And boy, oh boy, if we get the kind of knowledge Peter's talking about, it's going to lift the roof off our church life if we get this knowledge. Come with me to see it. He writes about this knowledge. Come with me to 1 verse 8. He says, great that you've got the knowledge, but you've got to add to it more knowledge, and you've got to add some godly living. Why? 1 verse 8. For if you possess these qualities in increasing measure, they will keep you from being ineffective and unproductive in your knowledge of our Lord Jesus Christ. Yeah, you've come to know him. Fantastic. But don't be unproductive in that knowledge. In fact, through that knowledge, have the productivity of growing in godliness. But that's next time, and Liam will get cross if I preach his sermon. That's what's going to go on as we go through that chunk. Spared from being ineffective in in our knowledge, through growing in godliness. Even for those who know, look at this. This is to people who already know, right? If you're thinking, I already know God, come with me to verse 12. So I will always remind you of these things, even though you know them. 
and are firmly established in the truth you now have. I think it is right to refresh your memory. Look at all the brain stuff that's going on. As long as I live. Come with me to verse 15. And I will make every effort to see that after my departure, you will always be able to remember these things. So I'm going to write you a letter that you might always know. We're called to do stuff with our mind and with our heart, right? We're called to grapple with who God is and lay hold of it. Come to know him. There's some brain work to do. Yeah, these people already know it, but that doesn't stop us from needing to know it more. We just did Colossians in the morning. What was Paul's tagline for Colossians? Get what you got. Get what you got. It's bad grammar, but it's true. Get what you got. What would be the message of 2 Peter? Know more what you know. Better still, know more who you know. You've come to know him. We'll know him better. That's the call of this book. And it's all the more important given the fact that, as we've said, there's these people who are being being corrupt in their knowledge. They're abandoning the knowledge. They're abandoning the grace and peace that could be theirs. They no longer know it. Come with me to chapter 2 and verse uh, 19. This is what's going on. This is the backdrop. This is what he doesn't want to happen. They promise them freedom. This is the false teachers promising people freedom. While they themselves are slaves to depravity, for a man is a slave to whatever has mastered him. If they have escaped the corruption of this world, how did they escape? By knowing our Lord and Savior Jesus Christ and are again entangled in it. They've abandoned the knowledge and are overcome. They are worse off at the end than they were at the beginning. It would have been better for them to not have known the way of righteousness than to have known it and then turn their backs on the sacred commandments that were passed on to them. Of them the Proverbs are true. A dog returns to its vomit and a sow that is washed, goes back to her wallowing mud. That's the danger. Where's the peace and the grace in those verses? It's nowhere. Because they left the knowledge. They failed to know God and to know Christ. And Peter says, beginning and end of this letter, if you want to know what a letter's about, look at the start and the end. It's always a good tip. He says, amidst this danger of losing the grace and the peace, amidst this danger of letting the precious faith which has been given to you from the hand of God, slip out of your hand. Hold fast to the precious promise. Grow in your knowledge. We saw growing in knowledge at the start. Come with me to the very end of the letter. 3 verses 17 and 18. Here's knowledge in this book. Therefore, dear friends, since you already know this, be on your guard so that you may not be carried away by the error of lawless men and fall from your secure position, the precious faith. What does he say? Alternative. But grow in the grace and knowledge of our Lord and Saviour, Jesus Christ. To him be glory both now and forevermore. Amen. You want the grace and peace? Grow in the knowledge. Let me illustrate this for us. If we want carriage after carriage, full of grace and peace, to arrive at the station of our life, at the station of our church, then the locomotive engine that will always bring them in is the knowledge of God. It will come in by no other means. If you're not interested in knowing God better, in studying him, in grappling with him, grace and peace are not going to arrive at the station of your life or the station of this church. We need to be growing in knowledge, relational, informational knowledge that is transformational. Peter never saw a train in his life, so he would not have understood that illustration at all. Here's when he would have understood. If you would want to pull a hole 
of ever multiplying grace fish and peace fish onto the deck of your life and the deck of your church. And boy, did Peter understand what it was to pull out a multiplicity of fish. If you would want to have that kind of hole of grace and of peace, then throw out the net of knowledge. Cast it again and again and haul that knowledge in and bring with it grace and peace. Let them flop onto the deck and fill you with joy. Use your mind, use your heart. Let them grow. Now where are we going to cast that net? If the net is knowledge and the fish are grace and peace and we want to haul them on deck, what's the waters? Come with me to chapter 3 verse 1. Dear friends, this is now my second letter to you. I have written them both as reminders, brain stuff, to stimulate you to wholesome thinking, brain stuff, the casting of the net. Now where do I want that net to be cast? 3 verse 2. I want you to recall the words spoken in the past by the holy prophets and the command given by our Lord and Savior through your apostles. If you would want to pull in this kind of hall, then there are deep waters wherein you can always find knowledge of God and always draw forth grace and peace. What is it? It's the authoritative word of God. The word of the apostles and the prophets, which they wrote as they were carried along by the Spirit. It's the word. It's the word. That is the deep and fathomless ocean in which you can cast that net of growing in knowledge again and again and again, daily each morning, weekly as a church, every Wednesday as we gather as growth groups. And boy, oh boy, if we're doing that in the word, then grace and peace will be multiplied to us. That's why he went to say, I'm an apostle. Do this in this letter. Do this with these words and with the words of Paul and with the words of the prophets as they've been understood by Jesus. Do it with the very words of Christ. If you would want to know God, do it within the enclosure of his self-disclosure. This is the parameters for how God has made himself known. He gave us a book. And if you would want to know him more, then it happens in the book. Here's Here's the takeaway from tonight. Know Christ in his word. It's as simple as that. Know Christ in his word. This is the book where you will find the truth about God, who he really is, what he is really like, what he has really done. Nowhere else. Make sure you're at a place where this book is taught faithfully and not twisted. Or grace and peace will slip from your life. Now I've been talking about fish and all kinds of funny analogies. Let's get pretty practical with this. Let's apply this, right? Really simple. How are we going to know Christ better in the Word? Let's just do a trial run. What I want us to do is ask and look. Ask God as you come to study His Word here or on a Wednesday night or on a Monday morning. Ask God, Lord, show me who you are. Show me who you are and show me what it means for you to be that for me. And then look. Look at the text and say, what does this tell me about God and what would it mean for God to be this in my life? You want to do a trial run right now? Let's do it. One verse one. We'll just do it through what we've read this today. Just through those first two verses. Lord, what do you want us to see about you? Who are you in these verses? Verse one. Jesus is the Christ. Jesus is the one who commands servants to do his bidding. Jesus is the one who established the apostles. Carrying on, we see that Jesus himself is God. Jesus himself is saviour. Jesus himself is righteous. Do you know him in these ways? And are you knowing him better in these ways? 
Verse 2, he's the one who gives grace and peace. He's the Lord. Are you knowing him in that way? It's as simple as that. That's all we need to ask when we come to it. What does this text tell me about Jesus? It's like six things in just those two verses. And then ask, am I knowing you in that way? Am I leaning on you as my Lord? Trusting you as my Savior? That's not difficult. We could do that each morning, right? As we come to God's word or when we do it at growth groups. But knowing Christ in his word must be central to all of those things if we would know anything of God's grace and peace. That's how I want you to do it. Here's another way you could get to know God better in his word. You need three of these. These are highlighter pens. And what you can do is go online, get Second Peter in the NIV or the ESV, print it out as a letter, and I want you to take the orange pen and highlight the danger in the warning. Then take the pink pen and highlight all the things that encourage me to know, everything that relates to the brain, recalling, remembering. Then take the yellow pen and highlight everything that relates to growing in godliness. You'll have painted the book. And you know what? You'll come to know the point of the book so much better. That's what we do, by the way. That's just what we do in the week. It's not rocket science. We're not smart. You guys could do this. You could get to know the book of Second Peter and get to know Christ in the book of Second Peter. Oh, and grace and peace will be yours. One other way to just simply apply. Just memorize the Bible. Not the whole thing. What about just these two verses? Simon Peter, a servant and apostle of Christ Jesus, to those who through the righteousness of our God and Savior Jesus Christ have received a faith as precious as our own. Grace and peace be, be multiplied to you. That's a better translation. Through the knowledge of our God of God and our Savior, Jesus Christ. You can memorize the Bible. You know what? Then you're on the 26th on a Monday morning commute, loading buses, and you've got something about Jesus to just chew over. Boy, can you know him in that way. And you know what? As we do these things, just simple things, highlighter pens and memory verses, praying to God to show us who he is, not rocket science. But as we do that through this book and through all of God's word, God will delight to make himself known. He will delight to make us a people and a church where his grace and his peace abound. That's what we want, right? We look forward to studying the rest of Second Peter. Let's pray.